John chapter 6, verses 41 through 58. And God's word reads, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Joseph, or is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word, and may your spirit that lives within us illuminate this text so that we may know, understand it, and not just understand it, but may, may know how to apply it to our life. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the battle of life, part two. I don't like to say part one, part two, because then we're so, sometimes it can be um, one of those things where we think it depends on what came before. And, and obviously it, it all continues. The, the Bible is a continuation. So there's always, it continues from one to the next. Um, but nonetheless, I did not plan on going there last week to have it part one and part two, but we will find ourselves in the second half of the text that I just read, starting at verse 52. And, and I want to jump right in again also this morning, and that is starting with verse 52. Verse 52 is just the same old, same old, if you will. Then the Jews began to argue with one another. Again, you have this idea of this argument. And I guess I should give you a little bit of the outline of where I'm going this morning. It'll just be the argument, the source of the argument, then the implication of the argument. The argument, the source of the argument, and then the implication of the argument. The argument we see in verse 52. For there to be an argument, there must have been some sort of disagreement, don't you think? How can you have an argument without a disagreement? What they were, we're not told. Don't you wonder, well, what was this argument all about? Or it says argument, sometimes we just scoot right on over top of that and get into the rest of it. But there must have been some type of argument or some type of disagreement. Obviously. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's what the argument was about. Now in times past, a uh, different line of work that I w- was in, um, as I made phone calls to wherever, I knew the person who answers the phone is not the person I want to talk with, right? I mean, you get that too. The per- nothing wrong with the person that answers the phone, obviously, but the person that answers the phone probably will not be able to solve your problem, will not be able to, to find a solution for your situation that you're in. And so it was always a challenge of how to move beyond the person who answers the phone to the second person. And usually it's about the third person who's actually going to be able to help you with your situation. And uh, that's how I found it. And that's the that's what I lived by often. So quickly, let's move on. And so I wanted to kind of do the same way with with this argument or this question that is before us. This is not really the question. How can this man give us his fleshy? See, that's not really the question. There is a question that is behind the question. What has led to them asking this particular question? We'll get there, but uh, for there to be an argument, there must be differing views. What were the differing views? We can only speculate on what the sides must have been. And we got into that a little bit last Sunday where we see the argument against Jesus. We've seen the argument against Jesus being the Messiah was that people grew up with with Jesus. People knew who Jesus was. They went to school with Jesus. They, they seen him around the neighborhood. They, they got snacks from his mom and they played football with his dad. They, they knew who Jesus was. And so there's no way this Jesus character can actually be the Messiah. And so today we're going to see the argument for Jesus. Say, well, okay. I mean, there's an argument. So there's a against and a for. And so today is this argument for Jesus being the Messiah. And it might have gone something like this here. Now, I remember, uh, my grandma and grandpa, my grandma and grandpa, I remember a long time ago, I remember as I was growing up and going to my grandpa's house, my grandma's house, and I remember them telling me about this guy at the church they went to, synagogue they went to, the church that they went to. And this, this guy was the pastor there and his name was Simeon. Right. And he told he used to tell this story about how uh, way back in the day, 30 years ago, that God had told him that, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And he was telling me about this and he would tell me about this. And, 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 and he said that now this Simeon guy, this pastor of this church, said that one time as he was there, this young couple brought this baby in to be dedicated baby was eight days old and brought the baby in to be dedicated. And as soon as I seen that baby, the Holy Spirit within me just revealed to me, said, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah that all the prophets are talking about. This is the Messiah that all Israel, that everyone is waiting for and looking towards. This is the Christ. This is the one. And I remember my grandpa saying, and the exact words stick into my mind, right? That this is what Simeon said in Luke chapter 2, if you're interested. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to the depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. I remember that's what Simeon had said over this child, according to my my grandpa. But not only did this pastor Simeon make this claim, but my grandpa also told me about this this older lady who who hung out at church. 
She never left the church. Uh, her husband died 48 years earlier, and she always hung out the church praying for everyone, fasting and praying. And just as this young couple brought this baby into the church to be dedicated, and Simeon was going to dedicate this child, here comes Anna. Here comes this person. And she walks in, and she says, before everyone, she stops in her tracks and said this, this is the baby. This is the hope of Jerusalem. This is the hope for all you who were waiting for the Messiah. This is he. And now that I think about it, now that I think about it, I think that was about 30 years ago that that happened. And fellas, not just that, but don't you remember as we sat in Sunday school class over and over those verses we had to memorize, all those verses we had to memorize that talked about Moses and about somebody like Moses is going to be raised up among the people. Maybe this is the guy that we memorized those Bible verses about. I don't know. What do you think? Could have it gone something like that? Last week, as we looked at the other side of it, it's kind of fun to think about it. Kind of bring it home to earth, right? Sometimes, sometimes we have, you know, the Bible is way over here and we, we're way over here. And it's like, no, let's bring it home. We think, well, that sounds kind of crazy to do that with the Bible stories. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is kind of crazy and it does kind of seem crazy, but that's what they were dealing with. That was real for the, for the folks of 2,000 years ago. That's how it would have gone. And sometimes we can look back and say, I can look back and say, how could they not see? How could they not understand? Well, when I put it in those terms, it makes me say, yeah, okay. I can see why this could have been a, a challenge for them. You know, on the one hand, you grew up with Jesus. And on the other hand, they seen what he did and they remembered the stories from the Hebrew Bible and the stories told by parents and grandparents. How or what are they to believe? How, as you can see why these arguments come up, is it possible? Is it possible for them to come to believe in Jesus as a Messiah on their own? That's kind of the question behind the question, is it not? Is it possible under those circumstances, as we looked last week and we look here today a little bit, is it possible for them to come to Jesus all on their own? There's this ongoing argument through the Gospel of John and really throughout all the Gospels. And so we'll just look at it briefly that there was always this argument and this battle going back and forth. In John chapter 7, they said, this is the prophet. Oh, this is the Christ. Or still others said, no, no, no. The Christ can't possibly come from Galilee. And so there was a division occurred in the crowd because of him. John chapter 7, 43. And then in John chapter 9, this man is not from God. Because if he was from God, he wouldn't do these things on Sunday or Sabbath, according to them. He wouldn't go to work. He wouldn't heal these people on the Sabbath. He would do it on any other day. Therefore, there's this division among the people. John chapter 9. John chapter 10. We call this chapter the Good Shepherd. The chapter of the Good Shepherd. Jesus talks about laying down his life and lifting it up again. And the people are like, no, 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 no. Again, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Over and over and over again, we see this judgment. This, or this argument. This argument or this discussion, if you like the word discussion better. This debate, if you like that one even better, I kind of like the debate. 
Um, there was this debate about could this be Jesus? Could this be the Messiah? Or is it not? Of course, the Bible doesn't say it's Jesus. It says it's the Christ, the Messiah. So later on in the 10th chapter of John, they said, nah, no, 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 this guy, this guy, Jesus, he has a demon. He has a demon and he's insane. Now, if you grew up with little Billy and he claimed he did all these other things, just like we went through last week and a little bit this morning, what would you think? You'd probably side with that. Yeah, he's got a demon or he's insane. One or the other, because other side says, no, 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 he can't have a demon. He can't be saved because a demon can't just heal somebody, can't heal their blind sight, can they? That's the debate that they're in. And this is the argument, is it not? Isn't this the argument? Jesus is either insane or Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, Jesus is in control of life, right? So often we want to say, well, this group or that person, well, they're really good person. They're moralistic, you know, in their, in their, in their <clears throat> outlook, in their behavior, in the culture, if you will. Well, such a good person. Yeah, they don't really believe in Jesus, but I think they kind of do, or, or at least they, they acknowledge Jesus as a good man. No, 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 no. He's either a demon and insane, or he's God. And if Jesus is God, he is in control, not just life, but in control of your life. And as my, my bike shop buddy, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Jesus is in control of life, but that's for something else. How can these things be? John chapter 3, we had the story of Nicodemus. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? And he asked that obvious question, how can these things be? In the fourth chapter, we had the woman at the well. And Jesus says, oh, I have living water. And the woman was more polite than maybe I would be and said, sir, the well is deep. You don't even have anything to draw the water with. Where are you going to get this living water? I just told him, you know what, you're nuts. Get on down the road. She had more polite than that. But in essence, that's what she's saying. It's like, ah, I can't really believe, believe what you're saying. Then in Mars Hill, we call it the Sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, now this is Paul talking. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer and others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Again, there's this argument about who is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is the argument. This is the question that is behind the question. There is no greater argument than the argument of the sovereignty of God. We say God's all-powerful. I think every single one of us would acknowledge God is all-powerful. But is He? I mean, really? Any limitations? Are you willing to let go of all and say, yes, God, I don't understand most of the things you're doing. I don't understand how you function. I don't understand how we have this coronavirus. I don't understand how a little baby can be partly born and gone. Isn't that the question? Or isn't that the dilemma? Isn't that the biggest argument that we hear against God? 
If God is all present, all knowing and all powerful, how can God allow these evil things to happen? Right. You've heard it and you've wrestled with it yourself. I guarantee it. Well, if I can guarantee it, probably can. What, what about that? What about the evil in the world? What about all the pain, the death, the suffering, and some of those horrible people that do horrible things against other human beings? We know them all. We hear their stories. We read about them, and we have those questions. What about it? I'm going to have an answer for it. I do have this answer. I could have some simplistic answers, but simplistic answers just really aren't that helpful. My favorite default chapter, of course, as you know, is Genesis chapter 3, but that's really not that helpful in the midst of pain, is it? But see, here, here, here's the thing. Here, here, here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you have a faith, if those who believe in God or don't believe in God, maybe you're Muslim, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you're Hindu, maybe you're Buddhist, maybe whatever, all the religions of the world. You say, I cannot possibly believe in God because of God was all-powerful. He would stop these evil things. But here's the problem. Okay, so you don't believe in God. Okay, you believe that whatever. It doesn't answer your question of pain, suffering, and evil in the world, does it? It doesn't, does it? We're still stuck with that. We're still stuck with what do we do? How do we answer the evil in the world. Christianity, those who are followers of Jesus are the only ones who can answer that question. We find it in Revelation 21.4. I'm sure you've taken great comfort from this verse at times. And we're told that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. As Christians, we're the only ones who have that hope. All other religions, they're stuck with the same evil we're stuck with. They just have no hope. They just have no answer for the response to the evil. I don't know if that's helpful or not helpful, but it is the answer that we have, at least a partial one anyways. And so that's the argument. And it's a good one, don't you think? Don't you think? There is the question, and then there is the question behind the question. Is Jesus insane or is Jesus God? I mean, come on, he talks kind of like he's insane, doesn't he? I mean, he, he, he kind of does. And the way in which Jesus talks is the source of the argument. It is the source of the argument. We see it in verses 53 to 57. And in this little section, um, a paragraph, if you will, or a unit of thought, verse 52 to 57 um, I see this as an inclusio or as a chiasm, if you will. An inclusio is just like a bookshelf, right? So you've got all these books. And there's a bookend on one side, there's a bookend on the other side. It holds, it kind of holds the stuff in the middle in place, right? And so it starts with a thought and it ends with a thought. And I see that in these five verses. In 53, it starts with life. Unless you eat, you have no life. 57, he who eats me will also live. And it's, in, it's in the center, it's bookended by those two thoughts. Life is in Jesus alone. Life is not found anywhere else at all besides that. In these five verses, I also, you can see that it could be considered a, a chiasm. It's just another a, a, a literary unit that would call a literary device, the way you, you look and see it, where you have verse 53, <clears throat> 
this is a side note, just as you read your Bibles, you can pick up on some of these things because they are important. But you have 53 and verse 57, they kind of go along with each other. You come in, right? You come into the next verses where you got 54 and 56, and those two thoughts kind of go in there. Then you got this one verse left in, all by itself in the center, verse 55, and that's the point, right? It's, it's working its way. And so instead of that kind of that pebble that hits the water and then the ripples go out, well, we're starting to come in and find out what's the source of that pebble? Where did that pebble land? And we see it lands right here on 55. It's the point. Jesus says, for my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. That is the whole point that Jesus is getting to. And that is the source of the argument, is it not? For those who took the words of Jesus, literally, eat your flesh, drink your blood. Uh, no thanks. <laughs> I might have a pizza instead, right? And for those who understood Jesus is speaking metaphorically, is Jesus the true food and the true drink? And if he is, then what does this mean in the battle for life? Who controls life? That's the question. Who controls life? So verse 53, unless you eat, you have no life. Unless you eat, you have no life. In the battle for life, life must come from somewhere because it does not come from you. It does not come from me. Unless you see this again throughout the biblical text, Matthew chapter 18, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you eat, you will not live. John chapter 5, 1 John, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Over and over and over, we see these two coming together. This equals this. In verse 56, in verse 56, just to cover these very quickly, verse 56, and the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he will also live because of me. I read 57, sorry. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. So this idea of you eat, you live. In verse 56, he says, he who, uh, who, who eats, he who abides in me, I will also abide in him. You eat my flesh, you drink my blood, I abide in you, and you abide in me. How is that possible? Now, many times abide is thought of as continue. And yes, it can certainly have that particular sense to it. But I think there's something more to it than that. How is it possible for you to abide in Christ and Christ to abide in you. Yes, we have to do our part. Yes, we have our own responsibility in, in it. But how does that happen? How is that possible? You know, you can have the greatest rock. And I, I, there are rocks at the bottom of the bay? I don't know. There, there are rocks in the bottom. Okay, there, you can have the greatest rock at the bottom of the bay. And, and you can have the greatest answer or anchor in your boat. And that anchor can be locked onto that rock fiercely. But what? What if you have a bad rope or chain? It's not going to do you much good, is it, with the anchor or with the rock? So you need it all. It has to be all put together. Over and over and over, Jesus says, I will lose nothing. 
I will lift up on the last day. I will certainly not cast out. It is not us who holds on to Jesus, but it is Jesus who holds on to us. What is our framework hanging upon? Look, you can have the best theology you want. You can have the best thought you want. But if there's nothing that anchors those two together, what is it? You don't have anything. That's what Jesus is saying. That you're abiding in me and I'm abiding you. How does that all really work? It all works. Because it's Jesus, right? It's the one He brings these together. He's in control of, of life. And so I want to look at this abide in another way because uh, I see a bit, look here. So let's look at it another way, another angle of this abide. And, and I really see this as marriage language and I might be off in a limb because I couldn't find a whole lot of support for it and I didn't really look all that hard. But, but I see it as, as marriage language. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, we have this, that the man shall now become bone of my bones. Or the man said, now she will become bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. See, the leave in Genesis chapter 2 here is that marriage language is the most important thing, right? I mean, when our daughter left the house, she left the house. Her and Mark have a great relationship as far as I know. But as a dad, as we visit, I try not to meddle in their business. Her mom does, but I don't. <laughs> but, but they've left. Their, their, their most important thing now is each other, not me, not in law, not her. No, it's them. They are now one flesh. How is that? I don't know, but they have left. They're now, they're now separate. They're now, they're not gone. They're, they're, they're now moved on. Jesus quotes Genesis chapter two in Matthew and also in Mark. Paul quotes Genesis chapter two in first Corinthians and in Ephesians. They point back to this marriage language and they take it a step farther and that's where we're going to go. But they take it back there. For those of you who are married, how are you one flesh? Right? I mean, when I think of one flesh, I think Cheryl should think exactly the way I think. She doesn't. She thinks weird. <laughs> So how are we one flesh? We're obviously not one flesh. But yet we are, aren't we? For those of you who have been married for longer than 32 years, I can't imagine what you must feel. Because after 32 years, it's like we are one flesh, aren't we? You know, but there's this abiding. You, Jesus, you abide in me and I abide in you. There's this unit. Can't explain it. I, I don't know what it, you know, right? See, in Ephesians there, Paul talks about this is the great mystery. But he says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Because Paul in that Genesis, or Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about marriage and how the marriage relationship looks. And then all of a sudden, he like switches gears without even telling us and says, oh, yeah, Paul, you're not even married. What do you know? Well, yeah, you know what? But it's a great mystery. It's a great mystery. Well, there's some great advice. But he says, no, no, no. I'm speaking about Christ. Christ and the church. Christ in the church. Jesus, I abide in you. You abide in me. What does that look like? What does that feel like? How do we, how do we understand that? That is a dilemma, isn't it? That is the source 
the source of the argument. What is the implication that this argument and the source of this argument brings? That's in 58. Yes, it was a pretty big deal. And since let me just put it before you again, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, yeah, Moses was a great man. Moses did some pretty amazing things that God actually did through His servant Moses. They kind of got that mixed up. But God also gave the law to you. Jesus is telling them. God also gave the law through Moses. How did that work out for you? How did that work? In fact, let's go all the way back. God gave Adam and Eve full reign. Mind you, before Genesis chapter 3, with only one negative instruction, don't eat from that one fruit. You think they could keep their cup? You think they could keep their hands off that one tree? No. Why? The fathers ate and died. This is literal. This is physical. They should have been able to understand this. There's nothing confusing in that. Jesus is not being confusing on this. In fact, all the great fathers, all those fathers they looked up to and said, because of this, Jesus can't be who Jesus says He is. Including Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, and you can put your own in there. They're all dead. There's no argument. There's no dispute there. You say these are such great leaders. Where are they? They're dead. Why? Because the law does not bring life. What brings life, Jesus says, is eating me. (laughs) The true bread from heaven that brings life. This is spiritual. We too will all die one day. But we can have life and live on in eternity. See, See, 2 Corinthians says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the battle of life. Not physical, but spiritual. Also in that 2 Corinthians 3rd chapter, it says that this life, this new letter, it's not written with ink, but it's written on on, on hearts. It's the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on, on tablets of the human heart. And Paul goes on to talk. Remember how Moses would meet with God and, and you were all afraid of Moses because of the glory that showed on his face. And so he had a veil over his face because you didn't want to look at his face and that veil is, is still on you when you read the prophets and the law because you're not seeing, you're not understanding. The veil is still been there and the veil is only lifted, Paul says, through Christ, through Jesus. It's the only one who can clear the fog, who can get you to see it. You can't, you can't walk up to Moses and lift the veil. There's only Christ who can lift that veil. It's now the Spirit of the Lord. Paul ends that with the Spirit of the Lord brings life. The Spirit of the Lord is liberty. So if you come all the way back again to 55, remember that point? For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he says, your fathers ate and they died. So do you see? So, so do you understand? I mean, every single one of us, 100% of us will die. Guaranteed to happen. Those who have eaten the true bread, 
Those who have eaten the true drink will die physically, but will be raised to eternal life after death, will live forever. Those who have not accepted Christ, those who have not eaten the true bread and drinking the true blood, they will also die, guaranteed. But they will not live eternally with God. They'll live eternally separated from God. So it's the battle of life. People say, well, you know, we have it today. We have it with our philosophy buddies and anybody else. Ah, Jesus can't be the only way. There's got to be multiple ways. It can't be just like this. That's not at all what Jesus says. The battle of life has been fought and won through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We too can have this eternal life, but it is only available for those who died to self. You've got to give up all of your life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we're going to get there next week and says, you can't come to me unless the Father who calls me draws you. Who's in control of your life? You may believe that you have the ability to choose God. Others believe it is God who chooses you. Either way, it is only Jesus who has been victorious in the battle of life. There's only Jesus. He is in complete and total control of your life of my life. Now, I don't know about you, but I find great peace in that. I find great comfort in that, that maybe I've messed up too many things all my life. But I find great truth in that, that there's one thing I can't mess up. And that's my eternal destination. I'm secure, eternally secure, in the arms of Christ. Are you? Lord, I pray this morning for your word, for your message. Lord, I pray I certainly didn't put a veil over your text, over your mission, over your purpose. I pray, Lord, that um, clarity would come to mind. And those things that are from you, those things that spoke to us, Lord, may they be, may they have their effect in us. And, And those things that weren't, Lord, would you just strike those from our memory. May your name be continued to make, be made great in each of our lives here at church, here at Holly Grove, but Lord, even more importantly, in the world around us, those who are seeking for answers, those who are battling for the meaning of life, Lord, may they see that it's you. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.